You're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 60. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. More than anything, this show is home to honest conversations between real people. We're not trying to sell you anything or trying to get you to fix yourself or your life or anything like that. Instead, this is a space to just be real, to take a deep breath and talk about all that good behind the scenes stuff that I personally think isn't talked about enough, like our fears, challenges, and insecurities, our secret dreams, how it really feels to try and make changes in your life, what happens when you don't accomplish a goal, and just the day-to-day truths of being human in a crazy world. As your host, it's so much fun for me to sit down with everyone from athletes, writers, and entrepreneurs, to parents, coaches, world travelers, adventurers, artists, the list goes on and on, and to then get to bring our conversations to you. And fair warning real quick that this is an adult podcast, which means that we often cover adult topics and use adult language, so don't say that you weren't warned. My hope for you as a listener of this show is that it makes you laugh, think, and just feel less alone. Because honestly, that's all I ever want, to laugh and then think and just to know that I'm not alone in the world. Something else that's unique about this show is that it's now 100% community supported. What does that mean? Okay, that means no ads, no sponsors, no outside influence, just us here together sharing stories. So in order to do that, the show is made possible by listeners like you, who have pledged $8 or more per each eight-episode season. To do this, we use a platform called Patreon. And not only does your support go toward the funding goal that we need to hit in order to keep the show going beyond the end of 2016, but your support also earns you access to exclusive bonus content. The bonus content includes conversations and interviews with wonderful guests that aren't aired publicly, plus you get access to the Squad Pod, which is a shorter version of of Real Talk Radio, where the guests are you, the members of the community. So everyone who supports the show with a pledge of $8 or more has the chance to be a guest on this behind-the-scenes podcast, which airs exclusively to our community. It's an incredible way for us to really get to know each other, and I'm beyond excited about the months ahead and the chance to get to know you, for real, through this new way of doing things. So as of right now, you can get over 20 hours of bonus content by going to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. That's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our community members who joins me for a quick and hilarious game of Would You Rather, and she shares why she's supporting the show on Patreon. So if you believe in this Real Talk revolution like I do, and if you're in the position to be able to support the show, I can't tell you how much that would mean to me. Right now, the show is scheduled and funded through the end of 2016, and if we meet our funding goal by the end of the year, then the show will be able to continue into 2017 as well, and you can make that happen. So thank you so much for the support, and let's dive right into today's episode. This is a good one. Today, you'll get to meet Kitty Cavalier. Kitty is the author of Sacred Seduction, a guidebook, memoir, and tribute to the art of seduction. She travels the world offering workshops and retreats that teach women how to use seduction as a spiritual practice and as a pathway to a pleasurable, sensual, well-lived life which is what I want, right? Isn't that what everybody wants? And in this episode, Kitty gives me a crash course in living a sensual, seductive life by tackling big questions like, what is seduction? What's the purpose of feeling sexy? Why do we need to pay attention to our pleasure? What defines the sacred seductress archetype? And why is she an incredible role model? And so much more. 
Kitty also shares a lot of personal stories, like how she went from wanting to be a nun to doing the work that she does now, what it felt like to do her very first burlesque performance, and so much more. As someone who deeply wants to feel more comfortable in my own skin, I so loved this conversation, especially the quick exercise that she took me through to explain the three phases of seduction. You'll see, it's great. And I hope that you love this as much as I did. Awesome. We are good to go. Kitty, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me on the program. Okay, so I have to ask, is that your birth name? (laughs) Well, you know, I love the way you phrase that question because most people say, is that your real name? And my answer is usually define real. But no, Kitty is not my birth name. Kitty Kitty was a name that was um, born when I became a burlesque performer. Interesting. Okay, so okay, I'm I'm always really interested in in naming and both in terms of how people choose to name themselves and just language choices in general. So when that name was born, did you actually legally change your name? Was that important to you? You know, I haven't changed my name legally. I've thought about it a lot. Um, do you want to hear a funny story about how the name came about? Always. <laughs> well, you know, Kitty Cavalier, um, one night I, I used to be married and one night after one of my burlesque classes, this was years ago, my ex-husband and a bunch of my friends who were at the class, we were all sitting around. And at that time, my name was Lucy Seduce Me. And this was before my work of Sacred Seduction was born or anything like that. And I liked that name, but it didn't really feel totally like a fit. So we were playing the stripper name game where you go around a table and you say, what was your first pet and the street you grew up on? Or what was your first pet and your first car? And my ex-husband's first pet was named Kitty and his first car was called a Cavalier. So that's how the name Kitty Cavalier was born. That's so funny. Okay, I never had pets growing up. Um, my, I have two cats now. One of which was my husband's cat, you know, forever. And so that cat's name is Jake. So Jake. <laughs> and my first car was a Honda Civic. So I don't really think I have a very sexy name here. Hmm. What was the street that you grew up on? Um. Oh my God, I've moved around so much that there isn't even one street necessarily that comes to mind. Um. But yeah, maybe I maybe I could pick one out and, t- and choose something that's not Jake. <laughs> well, we will definitely, I am setting a goal for us by the end of this episode for us to come up with a burlesque name for you. Uh, yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> it will, usually if you let it come to you, that's how it happens most organically. Okay, okay. Um, but to answer your question, no, I have not legally changed my name to Kitty Cavalier. So it's very nice and fun to have a little um, alias. Yeah, I I just got home um, a couple weeks ago at the time of this recording from a 460-mile solo backpacking trip. And I know, right? And one of the kind of traditions on the trail with, I guess, long-distance hiking is to have a trail name, either one that you pick yourself or one that's given to you. And it's funny, of all of these people that I met on the the trail, I I don't think I know any of their real names. (laughs) Like, oh, well, my, you know, my friend Dragon or that. And I'm like, oh, definitely couldn't look this person up ever because I don't know his actual name. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, yeah, okay. that's the case in the burlesque world also. Interesting. Okay, so I can't wait to hear more about that. Tell me, what was the most fun part of your summer this year? Wow. The most fun part of my summer was a very specific moment where it was my sibling's birthday, and um, 
we go to Cape Cod every year, every summer. My mom and my sibling and I, my father passed away about two years ago. So we do a family vacation, just the three of us every year. And in Cape Cod, there's this restaurant called Patio in Provincetown where we go. And they have full, like, pound and a half lobsters. It's very, like, chic and delicious. It's There's, like, the lobster pot down the street, which is a more, like, classic New England chowder with crackers kind of experience. But this place is a little bit more snazzy. And all year I look forward to sinking my teeth in this, into this lobster in the, like the most savage, unseductive way you could possibly imagine. And, um, we ordered the lobster and he said that they were down to one lobster. So we had to split the lobster, but I will never forget that moment of sitting at the table with my mom and sister. And we had just arrived in Cape Cod and it's like every year we have this tradition and that feeling of the butter dribbling down my chin and my hands being all sticky from the water and that velvety taste of the lobster of my tongue. I would say that that was pretty much one of the climaxes of my summer. My God. Okay. So (laughs) I love the way that you described that. I also love, I don't know, hearing other people talk about their traditions or rituals. I've been recently thinking, um, because I, I have half siblings that are quite a bit older, but so I basically grew up as an only child. And, um, you know, my parents moved me to over to England to another continent when I was little, we moved around a lot. So I didn't grow up with this kind of big family. We all do, you know, X thing every Sunday or every Thanksgiving or every whatever. And now as an adult, I'm starting to think about, okay, how can I cultivate, you know, traditions and rituals, whether that's family related or the family that you choose with friends. So in addition to that trip, is there, are there any other other traditions that you have with your people? With my family or with with like whoever? Well, you know, where I live, I have a couple of different girl gangs and one of my girl gangs is the lady boners. So when we (laughs) met, I live in, (laughs) I live in North Carolina and, um, I lived in New York for 15 years and I decided to try living in a smaller city. And I found a lot of people who had come from New York who were transplants and we were all single and we would go out every like Wednesday night for a flirting date. And for some reason, the the word lady boner came up and I was like, that would be a great name for a girl gang. So we have um, lady boner nights. And I mean, there's no real specificity around the tradition, but more just like, you know, it feels like, it sounds really cliche, but like the experience of like, you know, the sex in the city girls sitting down to brunch. It's like, it feels like that, you know, it's like we sit down and we have rosé and we eat um, chocolate covered raspberries and we talk about boys and we talk about life and we talk about everything and we talk about sex a lot And it's awesome. And I'm really grateful for that, you know, because like moving to a smaller city, I was really nervous about creating community. And so my Lady Boner Nights are a very deeply held and cherished tradition. That must have been an interesting transition from New York to North Carolina. For for real. <laughs> Where do you live? Uh, I live in Bend, Oregon, which I mean, oh, my, really? yeah, my story is pretty similar. I, I grew up in New York, actually, as well, and have only ever lived before this in really big cities, you know, New York, London, LA, San Francisco. <laughs> so coming here was what I imagine some of the on good and bad culture shock that probably you experienced as well. 
Yeah. You know, it's funny because I've been to Bend and I really loved the way it felt there. I loved the mountains and I loved just kind of the feel of that smaller city. And so that flavor was something I was really looking for. And when I moved, when I came to Asheville, I was like, oh, this kind of feels like Bend. And um, so, yeah, it's been a huge, huge transition. And I don't know if I'll stay here forever, but it's it definitely works for now. That's Asheville's one of the cities that always comes up that either people, like you said, compare to Bend or they think, you know, Nicole, I think maybe you would like it there. So I've never been, but maybe now I have to add that to my list of places to visit. Come visit. Come visit. Oh, I love it. Okay, so there's so much that I want to talk about about your work that <laughs> I'm almost like a deer in headlights, like you must ask all the questions, <laughs> right? Um, so, okay, so where do I want to start? So I know that you host workshops, retreats, that kind of thing um, around the idea of seduction, teaching women how to use seduction as a spiritual practice, which I, I love that phrasing. So before we get into this kind of conversation about seduction, I wanted to ask how do you, I don't know if define is the right word, but how do you define seduction or what does that mean to you? Mm, Good question. You know, seduction has a lot of different meanings to me. And I think that that in itself is a good example of how I define seduction in a way that's different from how we traditionally define seduction in our culture. Because like, like when you think of seduction, how do you define seduction? Yeah, I was thinking about that before before we got on this call. That the normal, I don't know, I, I, the normal connotation that comes up, I feel like almost has it's. I mean, it's very sexual to me in my head, and has it even brings up the idea potentially of manipulation, mm-hmm. which I don't definitely. love, right? Like, and and I know that that's definitely not from from what I know about your work, not your approach to it. But that's that's what comes up this idea of seduction as almost like a power play, right? Right. So, and it can be, you know, there's a lot of different sides to seduction and that's one side to using seduction, but just like anything else in life, it's like, you know, there's, there's the thing itself and then there's how you use it, you know? So, so a really simple example would be like, what did you have for breakfast this morning? I had a smoothie. And what made you choose a smoothie over having like eggs or cereal or anything else they usually have for breakfast? Um, I mean, the most honest answer is because that's almost the only thing that I have in the house are ingredients for that, <laughs> like froze, frozen fruit, and this is what's in the fridge. But also, it's it's an easy go-to thing that I know that I will enjoy. Okay, perfect. Perfect. So you could say that this morning, a smoothie is what seduced you for breakfast. Would you say that that's accurate? Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So it's like seduction is really that simple. Like seduction is attraction in action. That's really all it is because the truth is you could have gone to the store and made yourself eggs Benedict, or you could have, uh, you know, run out and gotten a protein bar or any other, you know, variation on something that you would have for breakfast, but the convenience of using what was in your fridge and the reliability of knowing that you like the way a smoothie tastes and makes you feel that in itself was a seduction and seduction as a spiritual practice, like kind of how I came to that concept was because seduction was something that completely scared me to death. And I, and I wanted to be a nun until I was in my teen years. I grew up really Catholic and it was a part of my life that I just thought like, that is just not for me. I am not a seductress. I'm not a seductive person. Like that's just not, not who I am. 
And it was when I began to, it, you know, it's kind of like they say, like, the thing that scares you most, like, that's where your greatest medicine is. And I noticed that in situations where I was expecting myself to be seductive or in situations like even as simple as lingerie shopping, where I would feel so incredibly intimidated and feel so self-conscious, it was like, all right, the obstacle course is set. I am willing to go forward and explore this part of myself as a way of developing myself spiritually and finding out what does this mean for me? Because my whole life, seduction was I was thought of as this manipulative practice that was reserved for loose women. And, you know, it's it's kind of the same concept of like the things that you're taught most to fear. That's the place where you look to get your deepest answers. And so that's a little bit about what seduction really means to me and why I've chosen to really kind of devote my whole life to redefining it for myself and for other people. Okay, so I have to ask about your backstory then. Like, you know, you mentioned just kind of lightly, oh, I thought I was going to be a nun, right? Which is probably <laughs> the opposite of what people think of. So can you tell me the story of how you even became really interested in in this kind of idea of seduction? And I mean, I'm assuming that came before deciding to, you know, do it as your work or business or, you know, whatever. But I'm curious about the origin story there. Yeah. Well, you know, so I, so like I said, I grew up wanting to be a nun and I had a very severe eating disorder when I was growing up and my relationship to my body was one of absolute punishment and isolation and disenfranchisement. And when I moved to New York, I began to, it was like, I I lived with my parents until I was 21 and I moved into my apartment in New York city. And, you know, I grew up in a town of a thousand people and in upstate New York, really, really rural area. So my viewpoint of the world was really limited. And then when I moved to New York, it was like, it was like there, there had always been this side of me, the like Madonna whore kind of side of me where it's like, you know, the me by day that, was was the good girl and just wanted you know wanted to be a nun wanted to be pure which by the way I recently learned that the word kid the name kitty actually means pure fun fact and you know then there was the part of me that had this like roaring sensuality and this desire to be naughty and I remember when I was in second grade making my act of contrition or making my penance in which in the Catholic faith is when you ask that faith is when you ask for forgiveness and saying the prayer, my act of contrition, um, my God, I am sorry for my sins with all my heart and choosing to do wrong and failing to do good. I have sinned against you whom I should love above all things. This is on a memory track in my brain. I firmly intend with your help to do penance, to sin no more and to avoid whatever leads me to sin. And I remember I would say the words, I firmly intend with your help to do penance and sin no more. And then my brain would go, but I like sinning. I'll die if I can't sin. You know, it's like, so throughout my whole life, I've always had these dualities. And when I moved to New York was when I started to have the opportunity to explore what that really meant for myself. And I've never shared this story before, but I remember um, being 21 and I had cable for the first time living in New York and I was all by myself and I was watching HBO late at night and I came upon the show Real Sex. Oh, I remember, remember that, that show. show. Yep. Right. 
And there was this episode on, it was called Strut Your Strap On, and it was these women who did a, a whole event, um, Tristan Terramino, actually, who I is one of my favorite sex educators, I really admire her. And then there was this thing about horseplay, you know, and there were these people who were on this documentary series doing their horseplay out in a corral, you know, and I just remember thinking like, my God, like you have to have so much confidence and so much faith in yourself to be that eccentric and that, you know, what I deemed really strange and weird at the time and go on television. And I just remember thinking like, God damn it. I want that. Like, I don't necessarily want to dress up like a horse and corral myself. That's my own personal preference. But like, I want that kind of courage to live that authentically, you know, and um, one of the opportunities for me to do that happened one night when I went to the slipper room on Orchard Street and I saw my first burlesque show. And when I saw that night were women who, you know, like, I, first of all, it was really intimidating for me to even be in the presence of that level of sensuality. And I was expecting, you know, kind of like girls getting on stage. This was back in, you know, 2003 or something. I was expecting girls getting on stage and and like being sexy, quote unquote, uh, based on my determination of what was sexy at that time, which was limited to what I had seen in a magazine. And when I saw that night completely changed my life forever because what I saw were women who got on stage and whose expression of who they are an unapologetic flaunting of who they were, you know, quote unquote flaws and all that that was the source of what made them sexy. It's like in that moment, my definition of sexy changed on a dime and I started performing burlesque. Um, you know, that's kind of skipping over a bit of the story, but, um, after a long, uh, exploration and a, a long practice and willingness to, to, to take on that kind of courage as a representation of my willingness to say yes to this part of myself that had been buried for years and years and years. I took the burlesque stage and I got really hooked on performing, not just for the experience of performing and being in front of the audience, but because of the metaphor of me standing in that spotlight and literally stripping away everything, every layer, like there was nothing left to hide behind and having that experience of my deepest vulnerability be my most, be the time where I felt my most sexy. Mm, okay. I love that. What, so you said you started performing burlesque. Tell me a little bit about what was going on in your mind the very first time that you performed. And maybe I'm just projecting onto you, but I imagine for me, I would be so terrified. Oh my God. I let, I didn't tell a fucking soul. <laughs> I mean, I was like, I want to be able to back out of this until my foot hits the stage, you know? And um, it was great because I, it was a very supportive environment the first time. At that time, I was a student at a school called Mama Gina's School of Womanly Arts. And I had had a profound transformation in terms of my sensuality through those courses. And I performed burlesque because I thought like, wow, well, 
how what 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 would be better to show how my relationship to my body has changed than to perform burlesque? And I didn't tell anyone. The only person who knew was my mom, who was actually there in the audience because it was our graduation, and and you know they had entertainment and like a talent show at the graduation, and. I got on stage and, you know, I mean, like, you know, when you're really nervous and your face starts to tremble and you feel like your lips are having a seizure. Have you ever had that experience? Yeah, I've had it to the point almost where my lips feel like they're going to go numb. Oh, my God. It's like so terrifying. It's it's a literal spasm, you know. So that was happening. So like my lower half is like doing this sexy fan dance and my upper half is like shaking out of control, you know. But um. So yeah, it was super terrifying, but, but in the same vein of what I was talking about before, which is like the thing you fear the most can be your greatest medicine. It was also the most liberating, most life altering experience I had ever had. And, um, it's what prompted me to then go on and start performing in public in New York city. And then what prompted me to go on and start teaching classes of burlesque as empowerment, which is what led me to my work of seduction. So you mentioned attending, what did you say, Mama Gina's School of Womanly Arts? That's a seriously Mm -hmm. good name, by the way. Um, What (laughs) were some of the specific things that you learned through kind of the classes or whatever it is that you did there that helped you get the courage, if courage is the right word, to perform burlesque and to go in that direction? Well, you know, her courses um, are very, uh, let's see, what's the word? They're really profound and they're really powerful and they're really different. You know, I've done a lot of feminine sensuality courses that are based in the the concepts of Tantra or, uh, you know, things like that. And Mama Gina's courses, like what I really got out of that was it was really relevant to me as a woman today. You know, it wasn't like they were ancient teachings that were brought to me today of, basically feminine confidence without having to change my set, like, like that my confidence starts within, which sounds like a little cheesy and a little trite. Um, but the, the whole concept of the school of womanly arts is it's based around pleasure and that when a woman pays attention to her pleasure and she studies her pleasure and she dedicates her life to her pleasure, she becomes irresistibly attractive and magnetic, not just to people, but to, everything that she wants in her life. So that was a, that was a really, really profound shift for me. And I actually went on to work there for about four years. I was the enrollment director there for a couple of years. And so that was a real training ground for me in, you know, like it, it wasn't just a hobby of mine to pursue pleasure. It was actually my job because I, you know, like how could I sell something that I wasn't living and wasn't modeling? So It was a real initiation into uh, a different understanding of pleasure than I had ever experienced before. Yeah. So I would love to hear kind of the the like nitty gritty of, you know, when you say starting to pay attention to pleasure more, you know, I think, oh, that sounds awesome. And then I think, okay, but how do I actually do that? (laughs) So will you talk about what that looked like for you when you actually on, you know, in your real day to day life, you know, started to pay attention to pleasure? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that was surprising was that pleasure is not always easy, you know, is like, it was actually really hard. Like I remember I was at the time I was working for a skincare company and I had worked in skincare for like 10 years and, um, 
I worked at this company where we were educators. And so we'd teach classes and they would always be needing uh, models for the demonstrations. And I was like up to my eyeballs with work. And um, I, someone was like, I need a model for the 330 class. And I really had to like force myself to go get a facial. You know what I mean? Like to, to take time out of my day to go and receive a skin treatment and a facial treatment and relax and fall asleep for a little bit and then go back to my work and feel refreshed. Whereas like the old me would have just like been like, I'm too busy. I can't do that. And powered through and probably end up staying later than I even did because I was so exhausted and depleted. Whereas choosing pleasure was really a practice and um, a reorienting for myself of choosing what feels good as a way of feeding my most brilliant, most intelligent self. That's so interesting. This, it's almost this idea that, I don't know, the, the struggle that it's difficult to receive or prioritize pleasure. Like that brings up so much for me. This, I, these ideas of, well, do I even deserve this? And I'm too busy. Or like, I just feel like we have a lot of internal chatter that blocks, uh, that blocks that. Mm-hmm. For sure. So uh, that, well, okay. So that brings up another question. What do you think are some of the common things that block us from feeling sexy or being able to prioritize pleasure? Like, I, I think the thing that comes into mind for me is the way that we sort of negotiate with ourselves or even kind of delay contentment. You know, I'll feel sexy when I lose 10 pounds or I don't deserve to get this facial because I still have 10 things on my to-do list or, or whatever. I'm curious what you think some of the, the blocks are that you've seen through your work. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that the, the main thing is everything that you just mentioned originates from this idea that pleasure and sensuality is the reward for hard work. Mm. Whereas the, the paradigm shift that we're talking about is pleasure and sensuality is the source of great work. Okay. Say more about that. What do you mean? What I mean is that like when I have a day where I haven't slept and I am rushing through my day and I look like shit and, you know, I haven't worked out and all of those different things, like my contribution to the world, whether that is how I interact with an Uber driver or how I treat my family or the kinds of blogs that I write everything I'm giving to the world is coming from a place of depletion. And I think, oh, I can't, I don't deserve a facial at the end of the day today because I didn't do anything. I'm such a slob, you know? And it just perpetuates this cycle of like, uh, a real shitty, um, quality of my presence. You know, because to me, like people always ask me, like, you, you know, like people are like, oh, how did you come to your work of seduction? It's so cool that you found your purpose. And it is. And seduction is not my purpose. Like seduction is the expression and the avenue through which I express my purpose. But my purpose is actually my presence. It's my ability to be present and to give as much of myself as I can to each moment, whether that's to someone or something else or even to myself. Whereas if we switch the rules around, 
which is that, you know, pleasure is not just the reward for hard work, but pleasure is actually the source of great work. It's like my willingness to wake up in the morning and put eucalyptus oil in the bottom of my bathtub as I take a shower and make myself a delicious decadent pot of French roast coffee and pad around in my fuzzy bathrobe dancing to Cindy Lauper. Like that is actually me assuring that my contribution to the planet that day is going to be uh, solid. So it's like those, those things that typically would be a reward in the previous paradigm then become the source of me being able to feed myself before I try to feed you. Yeah, I, I mean, I, what I'm hearing you say, it's, it's almost like a, or it is, a perspective switch, like a complete mindset change, because you're right that it, these things are thought of as rewards. And when I think about rewards, that usually has a connotation of rest or maybe even kind of laziness or indulgence, or there's a lot of things you could put there that I could see how it would be easy for someone who has that mentality, which, you know, I, I count myself among those people, to 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 be afraid that, oh, if I start my day with that, well, then I'm just going to be lazy all day and not get anything done because look at me, like I'm so indulgent, or who am I to think that I, you know what I mean, can, can take mm-hmm. this extra time in the morning, that it's a perspective switch to think of that these things are energizing and empowering and not just kind of a, a restful wind down thing. Does that make sense? Totally. Totally. It's that it's, it's almost like, um, like that, what you said, I don't have time to do these things. It's like, how many people do we know who are completely burnt out, who have adrenal exhaustion, who, you know, are, like basically are, are not even like, I, I think with the women that I work with, the number one thing that they want to experience is like at the end of the day, when they put their head down on the pillow, they feel like they've missed their life. They feel like they're missing their lives. They feel like they are so busy trying to fit everything in that they don't have time to actually enjoy and savor you know, the feeling of their children's cheek against their lips when they kiss them goodnight, they're not actually present for that. And so sensuality and paying attention to those things that seduce you, which often are the things that bring you the deepest, most gratifying sense of pleasure, you know, not just the hedonistic, let me stay home and take a rest day and, you know, eat bonbons and have sex all day, which, you know, can be fun. But, you know, it's like that in itself is not sustainable, like sustainable. And that's one of the reasons that seduction is so important to me is because seduction to me is a form of sustainable uh, location of what brings you true pleasure. Because if you are really honest with yourself, if, if you just eat truffle after truffle after truffle, if you're really honest with yourself about that next truffle, does it seduce you? If you're really truly listening to your instincts, the answer is most likely no. However, if you're jacked out from working all the time, you're not able to connect to those instincts and all you can hear is your impulse, then the answer might be yes. And then you end up exhausted from even that. Yeah, I mean, so you mentioned the word sensuality, which like both sensuality and seduction, I think were triggered to think of that in a sexual context, which of of course it can be. But that idea of sensuality and then kind of the examples that you gave, just like at the very basic level of engaging your senses, like uh, so many of the examples that you gave, you know, the, the eucalyptus oil in the shower, these types of things, these seem like things that would be very 
sensory and that that's where I don't know I'm getting like that's where a lot of pleasure comes from right totally I mean to me the word that really resonates um is erotic and it's another word that when you hear that it's like well what could be more sexual than erotic but like to me erotic is something simply something that merges the experience of my mind and my spirit with the experience of my body, you know? So it's like the experience of inhaling a basket of fresh, really ripe, fresh picked strawberries like that in itself can be erotic. It doesn't mean I want to have sex with those strawberries. It doesn't mean I want to like go fuck someone after I've eaten those strawberries, you know, but it's like in that moment, all of my senses, like I am, deeply, profoundly reminded of my own aliveness. And there is an inherent eroticism in our aliveness. Yeah, I mean, even this, I just flashed, I don't know why, but I just flashed on how good it feels when you go, let's say, to the beach or something, and just that feeling of laying still and having the warm sun on your skin, you know, before you get too hot, those first couple of minutes where it just feels so good. And you're right, it is that kind of alive, anything that triggers our senses, our physicality, that is a reminder of aliveness. Mm hmm. Totally. Okay. So can you tell me a little bit about what your workshop retreat experience is like, either some details or just I'm so fascinated to hear what it actually entails and how you how you teach this, because everything you're saying, I'm like, yep, I want that. I want that. All of it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have to come. Yeah, I know. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe I'll bring um, seduction to, to Portland. Um. So in my workshops and retreats, you know, I mean, like the interesting thing is that like in my, like the, the content of my workshops and retreats is really about getting a woman to trust herself and feel confident that she is a seductress and doesn't need a reason for that. So it's like, for example, at my New Orleans retreat, you know, we have a lingerie shopping adventure where the uh, lingerie boutique in the city that we go to trashy diva, you know, we close down the store and I do a whole burlesque lesson, a striptease lesson. And we do uh, a lingerie, private lingerie fitting series. Um, you know, there's, um, sensual eating exercises where it's like an experience of traveling the world through your senses. Like the other night I was out with, with the lady boners actually. And, um, I was teaching them this exercise of traveling the world through your senses where like, when you take a bite of something, it's like you immediately say like what images come to your mind or what sensations come to your mind. And we were eating steak tartare and I took white one bite and I was like, Oh my God. I was like, this feels like when you're like 16 and you've only ever kissed other people who don't know what they're doing. And then all of a sudden you kiss someone who like really knows what they're doing. Like that's what that tastes like, you know? And so it's like merging the senses and like actually locating the fact that you have everything that you need in order to arrive at that destination of feeling sexy and sensual and pleasured and seductive without having to shape yourself into someone who's 10 pounds thinner or who has a lexicon of pickup lines or any of those other generalizations that we make about the stereotype 
of seduction. And the exercises are really suited around embodying the archetype of seduction. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I could listen to you talk about this forever. (laughs) Um, You know, I I think one of the reasons that I personally and selfishly, I mean, I feel like this whole podcast is me just selfishly, what do I want to learn about? Please teach me things. Um, And, you know, I, one of the things that I like to do in my life or that I find to be helpful as a personal growth tool is to use my jealousy as a roadmap. Like I look at, okay, who or what am I do I feel jealous of and what are the kind of commonalities between you know if they're why is it these three women that I'm always jealous of or whatever like what are the things that they have in common and what are those basically what is that telling me about something that I would like to cultivate in myself right and Mm -hmm. so one of the things that's been coming up for me I'd say the last specifically the last two years I'm noticing that kind of the common denominator of my jealousy are women who, I mean, it's everything that you're talking about, who I feel like are 100% comfortable and confident like within their own skin. And it is this like very, it's almost like a physical presence being around them that they just, it's this energy, it's this magnetism, and it probably all falls into exactly what you're saying. And it's just this, it is, it just, it has this very sexy quality in a way where sexy not doesn't necessarily mean sexual in that but it's just it's like you said Mm -hmm. it's like you want to be around like there's there's something there that I'm very interested in and I mean it makes sense to me how all the things that you are describing are kind of how you get to that place but that's it's definitely something that I've been thinking about totally I couldn't agree more and I I feel the exact same way and that's why when I talk about sacred seduction like adding that word in front of it sacred seduction that's the name of my book and that's the name of my business is like sacred seduction is not just about being attractive, but it's attraction through authenticity. Like that's how I define sacred seduction is it's this potent, unshakable confidence that comes from a fearlessness around telling the truth about who you are without apology. So I I couldn't agree more. Um, Wee wee. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, and so just to be, to be honest, you know, one of the things that I have thought about and struggled with when it comes to this kind of stuff, you know, thinking about this more the last two years, I find that for me, and I can't be alone in feeling this way, that there's a disconnect between, I don't know, the ideas that sound really nice in theory and then how that actually plays out in practice, right? Like these things of, you know, loving your body and, you know, being confident and you know that confidence comes from within and like all these things that we hear that sound great and I'm like yep that's that's awesome like I want all Mm -hmm. those things right but I I, like it seems I think this is the problem with a lot of things that are anywhere in the self-help genre like it's not that we don't agree with the fundamental statements but that there's some kind of like the missing link of I don't know if action steps is the right word, but, you know, I always find myself frustrated with, okay, well, what do I do to feel, you know, more sexy and more authentic within myself that it's like, it sounds nice, right? And I can have mantras around it. But then like when I get into my actual life and I'm like, okay, well, I have to do laundry and I have to do these. Like it seems to break down a little bit. Do you find that that's common with women that you work with? Oh my God, so much. And for myself too, like this is something that I'm really in my own spiritual practice is like realizing how much how often I like hate myself for not loving myself enough. You know what I mean? Oh, that's, Hey, that's profound. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. You know, where you're like, I should be more authentic or I should, you know, it's like as if we don't have enough shit to do. 
now all of a sudden, you know, I was just talking with a client about this the other day about how she feels, she just started a new job and she feels so bad about herself because she's not getting up at 6am every morning and doing yoga and she's not giving herself a bubble bath at night. And I was like, girlfriend, you know, like give yourself a break, you know, like, like it, in some ways this, um, new evolution of consciousness around self care and self love and all of those things can really, it's, it's, it's like, we're just, we're taking these more feminine principles, but using a very masculine approach to bring them into our lives. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so when you say that feminine principles enacted in a masculine way, I think I know what you mean, but can you clarify that? Yeah. So to me, and like, I don't really use those words that often feminine masculine, because I think that they can be really, um, interchangeable and, um, uh, you know, obviously I'm not in any way speaking about a person's gender, but you know, masculine, like to me, the feminine is the energy of seduction, whereas the masculine is the, the energy of production. Okay. So in other words, like the feminine is the energy of being able to receive, whereas the masculine is the energy of being able to achieve. Mm-hmm. And so, so like another example is like, I, I had this client who was like, you know, I really want to bring more feminine energy into my life. So I bought, I bought this, uh, dance class pass because I thought dancing would be a really great way to do it. But, you know, I bought the one that expires in 30 days so that, you know, I would go. And of course I didn't go, you know. So it's like she wants to incorporate this energy of spontaneity and creativity and something that is un, uh, has not previously been experienced, something that she feels herself moving towards, that she feels herself lusting for. But the way in which she was doing it was I've got to do it in 30 days and I've got to get six classes in and I'm going to go twice a week. You know, so it's like, I, <laughs> you're like basically describing me completely. So that's why I'm laughing. <laughs> you know, and I wrote a blog about it called, is this a container or is it a cage? You know, because like when you, like the thing is, is like self-love, self-care practices, all of these things, you know, incorporating more pleasure, incorporating more seduction, all of these things are amazing. But when they only serve to lengthen the yardstick that you measure yourself against at the end of the day, that is when they become destructive. Yeah, if it's just one more thing to shelf to self shame about, right? Like, oh, didn't love myself enough today. Like, what's wrong with you? You couldn't even, you know, whatever, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Like, that's something that I think is, is important to remember is that like structure and discipline when it comes to self care and self love is important because that container is very necessary. Otherwise, you know, would either never get done or, you know, whatever. But at the same time, like by their very definition, they are spontaneous experiences. Like I, I just think about like, you know, the first, like, like, have you ever had the experience where you're like, Oh my God, I'm using a peppermint scrub in the morning. And I feel like so invigorated and amazing. I need to do, I need to do this every day. I need to do this every day. This is my new morning ritual. You know, it's like all of a sudden this spontaneous experience of, of delight. It's like if your lover comes up behind you 
and wraps their arms around you and nibbles your neck and you're like, oh my God, that made me feel so good. Okay, every day at five o'clock when I'm making dinner, I want you to come up to me and do that. It's like, it's trying to take the formulaic and predictable and put it on something that that was never meant to be contained in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I do have some thoughts about how how I personally work this into my life. But before, um, like that, that kind of winds back to the original um, question that I feel like you asked. I went off, off on a little bit of a tangent there. But, um, but you know, I, I agree with you completely. And, um, like, how does all, like, I'm curious, like, how does all of that land and resonate for you? No, I mean, everything that you're saying makes complete sense. And obviously that I'm, I'm laughing because everything you're describing, I'm like, yep, yep, I can relate to that. And I'm like, I'm sure people listening are, I mean, hopefully I'm not alone, right? That they're like nodding along. Like, yeah, it's, it's like trying to micromanage pleasure, right? Like, okay, well, like now I got to fit this in or it just becomes, either it becomes another thing on the to-do list or it's, you know, something that I try to control or, or, or it's, I don't know. I think I have a hard time. Like, how do you make space for something without that? I don't know. Right. Like what, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. Um, like how do you make space for spontaneity without putting it into your Google calendar? Right. Where it's not like, okay, 4 PM <laughs> go be spontaneous. Like it's, it's almost like, I don't know with, I mean, and I think that the world of self-care, I mean, obviously, while it is, of course, important for us to care for ourselves, I think that in a lot of ways, it's kind of gotten too cultish or gone off the deep end because anything that people can turn around and make money from, right? Well, I have to teach you, like, these are the five things that if you don't do these every day to care for yourself, like, you're never going to be happy or, you know, whatever, like, bullshit, but that it's, it's being able to kind of sort through that and figure out like what it is for you, you know, when it comes to care or when it comes to pleasure, because the thing that's going to be pleasurable for you might be different than what than for me or for someone else. And it's like leaving yourself space to explore that without getting too regimented about it, whatever that like sweet spot is. I have not found and it winds up being anything that I try in this regard or have tried in the past winds up just feeling like another item on my to-do list that then I feel stressed out and if the thing that was supposed to make you feel good becomes another like avenue for stress and self-criticism I'm much more likely to be like well I'm just not going to do these things because they're they're Mm -hmm. having the opposite effect and so I'm really like very interested in in finding another way. Yeah, I hear you. And, um, you know, when, when this comes, like, cause this comes up a lot when I'm coaching with women, like usually when we do a series, it's like the first couple of sessions will be all about like bringing more of this practice into their life on a regular basis. And then all of a sudden they're like, you know, I, I just can't seem to keep up with it or whatever. And it's this arrival point in the coaching where like shit then gets real because the real question is not why don't you have more pleasure and more satisfaction and all these other things in your life. It's like, to me, the real question is like, why do you have to, why do you have to be so perfect all the time? Why do you feel like you have to be so perfect all the time? Like, what is it in that? Like, why does your to-do list have to be two miles long on the left side, it's all the things you need to do. And on the right side, it's all the things you need to feel in order to be okay. Like, that's the real question I feel like we're asking. 
Yeah, I agree with that because a lot of, you know, what you're describing about pleasure, it seems to me that in order for that to be experienced, that there has to be a level of acceptance around that, like about yourself and about deserving that and not being, I don't know, not being so regimented or like, like you said, treating any of these things as a reward or as a should. Exactly. And to me, that's what's so rewarding about the sacred seductress archetype is like, I don't need, like to me, a woman is inherently seductive and the practice of sacred seduction attraction through authenticity is like, I am a seductress just because I am, I don't need a reason. I am not a seductress because of how many people I have going in and out of my bedroom. I'm not a seductress because of my lingerie connection collection. I'm not a seductress. Like I was writing a blog today. Like I am as much a seductress when I'm flailing around and hopping about trying to pull off a bird of paradise in yoga as when I am, when I just like nail a full wheel, you know what I mean? Or like I am as much of a seductress when I am entertaining a room full of guests in my home singing songs in French while everyone is drinking champagne as much as I am when I am at a party and feeling a wave of social anxiety and I'm hiding in the corner. Like it's like I am a seductress. I am attractive. I am sexy. I am delicious. I am uh, inherently, eternally... um, femininely powerful simply because I am not because of the things I do and not because of the things I have. Yeah. Okay. So it's the difference between it being an identity versus like a set of behaviors or actions. Exactly. Okay. Okay. That's I mean, the ship. because I think that even this idea of seduction or sexiness, like so much of, and maybe I'm just talking about being a woman in America at this time, right? Like, of course, like everything's colored by, you know, whatever we, we see and we're surrounded by. But so much of that seems like seduction or sexiness for the purpose of outside approval or, you know, I don't know, to be sexy, you have to X, Y, Z things, right? That it's like, these are the criteria that have to be met in order to be considered sexy or any of these things that it's all, you know, you versus someone else or you in context of like something cultural as opposed to what you just described is this like very internal, I don't know, like a, like an, uh, yeah, an identity. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and, and to me, that's what makes it a spiritual practice. You know, I was writing this morning about how when I first started investigating seduction, it was because like I'm a heterosexual woman and it was because I wanted to feel more comfortable around men. Men really scared me. I've had a lot of trauma in my life around men and I felt like a bumbling idiot around men. And so when I first started researching seduction, it was because I wanted to have more mastery in that area. And what I learned is that it really doesn't matter whether or not I uh, like, like the guy is irrelevant. Like the what, what I noticed about myself was that in a romantic context, particularly around men, but also in a romantic context, particularly that was when I was most mean to myself. Like all of a sudden, five minutes earlier, I could be walking around feeling fine. And then all of a sudden, if I'm put, if I was put in some sort of romantic context, I would feel fat or I would feel stupid or I would feel insecure. And it's like, oh, this whole seduction thing is is so not about what happens with the other person. 
This is about me reclaiming my power and who I am and my identity as a whole person, regardless of who's in front of me. And that's what makes it a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you mentioned the sacred seductress as I think the word you used was archetype, which makes me want to ask the question. So who is the sacred seductress? Like what are some qualities that you would, if you had to describe that to someone? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, one of my personal hobbies is researching seductress history. And there's a really great book called Seductress Women Who Ravished the World and Their Lost Art of Love by Betsy Prelu. And I'm very blessed to call Betsy a friend and a mentor. And I, she, the book is just amazing. I highly recommend it. And what she talks about in her book, and this was a game changer for me when I first started studying seduction was that true seductresses were uh, were not necessarily these bombshells or you know these even even stereotypically attractive in any sense of the word like what we see as a seductress if you go and you google seductress you see a bunch of women in lingerie like rolling around on a beach you know and that is one square on the Rubik's Cube. That is one dimension in the pixel of what a seductress is or can be. That's like the stereotype of seductress. The archetype, truly lasting, sustainable attractiveness, where that comes from is the courage and deep faith to be exactly who you are and listen to that inner reservoir of truth. There's this great quote by Albert Camus, I don't seduce, I surrender. So when I think about the archetypes of sacred seduction, I think about women like Natalie Barnet, who um, in the early 20th century, you know, she was born in Dayton, Ohio, and she was bored to tears in Dayton, Ohio. So she convinced her parents to move her to Paris. And when she got to Paris, she began having these literary salons on Fridays where these were no like Oprah book clubs. She actually hired fellow seductress Matahari to ride in on a white horse one afternoon, reenacting the scene of Lady Godiva. Natalie Barnet was openly queer in, during a time where to do so or to be so was utterly scandalous. I mean, we're talking about the Edwardian era and would actually recreate the island of Sappho through rituals in her backyard. It's like she didn't give a shit about what other people <laughs> thought of her, you know? And here's the thing. Here's the trap. Is like you might be listening to this conversation thinking like, okay, well, I just need to think less about what people think of me. But that in itself doesn't work because if I tell you to not think about polar bears, all you're going to think about is polar bears. Right. If I tell you not to care what other people think about you, all you're going to do is think about that. The answer is to care more about what you actually give a shit about. And that is the archetype of the sacred seductress, is a woman who knows what she is, knows who she is knows what she loves, and does so without apology. Oh my God, can I just like give you a standing ovation right now? Is that- <laughs> <laughs> so researching the history of seductresses, like is that the best hobby ever? Yes. I don't oh think I've God. ever heard I someone did- say that. That's, oh my God, it's amazing. <laughs> I could seriously sit on the phone with you for like the next eight hours and just regale you with stories of courageous, bold, um, I don't give a shit women who as a consequence, like here's the deal, like Josephine Baker, another really classic example, Josephine Baker, born in the States, faced enormous discrimination because of the color of her skin. 
hightailed it across the pond to Paris, became one of the most legendary entertainers of all time. But here's the thing. She's known for her feathers and her banana skirt and her eccentric performances. But she also was awarded the Rosette de Résistance because of her efforts to help the French resistance during World War II by sneaking war correspondence into her panties and sneaking it across country lines illegally. She also, during the height of the civil rights era, adopted 10 different children from multicultural and religious and ethnic backgrounds to prove during the civil rights movement that multicultural families could live in harmony. She actually bought a chateau in the south of France and opened an amusement park, a public amusement park for her children that she made her home. Like she was a bad ass. So her seductive potency, like if all she did was try to get to, um, look like what you see when you Google search seduction, that would have gotten her about two inches on her journey. But she was in it for the long haul. And that's why she's a legend. So that book you mentioned by your friend Betsy, what's her name? Betsy? Mm -hmm. Um, Does that talk about like, does it is that a book that goes into a lot of these different women? Totally. That's it's it's like so amazing. Each um, chapter is focused around a certain myth about seductresses like that seductress like in order to have to be a seductress you have to be kind you have to like kind of play stupid or in order to be a seductress you have to be conventionally beautiful and each chapter chronicles the lives lives of women who were epic and legendary seductresses and champions in love who were you know uh, cutthroat politicians or who were uh, incredible intellectuals, you know, who just broke through all of those myths of what it's, what is required for a woman to be considered attractive. Okay. Well, so that's getting moved up my reading list for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And it's in that way. Like when I talk about seduction, like seduction being a feminist art, it's in that way that the original seductresses were the first feminists because they refused to isolate their feminism from their femininity. They merged both of those things. And that, to me, is the recipe for sacred seduction. Um, Yeah. Okay. So I'm reading that book 100%. And something that (laughs) everything that you just said brought up for me was, you know, I I was saying before, uh, you know, that I'm craving, you know, baby steps, beginner tips, like actual things. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit, like (laughs) ways to kind of close that gap between this sounds nice, but my actual life looks like, you know, the opposite of that or whatever. And I think something that's an often overlooked aspect of really any kind of change is having better role models. Like, cause even just those short stories that you told me of those two women, and as you said, I'm sure that's two of, you know, tons that we could talk about and or and or that are profiled in that book. That it's I don't know, I hate to culture bash or whatever, but I mean you look around and like, oh, the Kardashians or oh whatever, like our who we glorify like pop culturally. I don't know, like it's not everything that you just said, you know what I mean? And like, so I think it's easy then to fall into the trap of, you know, sexy equals this, or just to have that really limited view, like you said, the two inches, like the one square on the Rubik's Cube, as opposed to like, even just those stories you shared opened up something for me of, oh, there's another way to think about this. Or there's, a you know, here are people who are embodying those characteristics. And to, I don't know, I think there's something powerful about purposefully reading about and listening to, you know, the stories of people that you want to be more like. Absolutely. Especially because 
you know, the, the female brain learns through story, like our, like, and I'm, I'm saying that through, from reading the book, the female brain, I'm not making that as a generalization, like, like, like it facts and information settle on the brain in one way, but you know, it's like the feminine is more um, a spiral than it is a straight line. And so actually hearing stories and seeing tangible examples is a super, super uh, effective way to recondition your brain and recondition what's possible for you. Well, then it almost acts sort of as a compass, like this is going to be kind of maybe a strange tangent or example, but I'm a huge Harry Potter fan, like love Harry Potter so much. And I read a book this year um, by John Granger called How Harry Cast His Spell. And it's all about basically answering the question, why are we so fanatically obsessed with Harry Potter? And it's goes through, it's basically talks about the religious themes in the series. And it's all about, you know, it's his argument is we feel that way because it's, you know, of the like the religious meaning and stuff that's in that and that we're kind of transformed as he as Harry is transformed and, and all of that. And one of the arguments that he makes in the book is that the power of books like that that have, I don't know, like a really strong moral compass or that kind of thing is that it gives people almost a subconscious blueprint. Not that I'm sitting around thinking, what would Harry Potter do? But the, that kind of stuff does get under your skin or it can kind of change your worldview or your perspectives. And I see how the same thing could be true you know, with paying more attention to these seductress women, right? That it's totally, it almost changes your, you don't just have your maybe default old programming operating system. And you don't just have what you're surrounded by, like on the internet or social media. It's like another way to almost reprogram if that, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It's like, I feel like our current perspective or understanding of a seductress is kind of like an undercooked pie. You know, it looks really brown and crispy and delicious on the outside, but you cut into it and it's weak and doughy and there's, there's no, it doesn't gel, you know, like that, like the, the stereotype that we were talking about before, whereas this new dimension, this new understanding, it's like, it's sustainable sexiness. It's sexiness that actually comes from who you are rather than what you look like. So yeah, so has there been, and I can just ask about, you know, for you specifically, were there any baby steps, beginner things, like things that you either did initially, or I think you mentioned before that there are ways that you keep this present in your life, you know, really intentionally, I don't know, and anything that maybe, well, for me, again, selfishly, or if someone listening is like, man, I really want to start feeling sexier, be more in touch with my seductive feminine self, what do I do? Like, is there a starting point, you think? Well, you know, I mean, I think a really good place to start would be doing more things that scare the shit out of you. That, for me, has always been the recipe for feeling sexy. Like, you know, a good example is like how I started my seduction practice was facing my absolute worst fear, which was showing my body in public. You know, and that was, it It was like finding the the, the elixir. Like, that was it. It was like, taking that thing, that thing that was my greatest fear or my greatest shame. And I I always talk about in my classes, um, this story about how I was one time running through Penn station on Thanksgiving night for the train and my zipper was broken and my boobs, which I have, um, size G boobs 
were like, I was wearing no bra and a tight shirt and my boobs and my belly and everything was just like moving in harmony, you know? And I felt so like embarrassed, you know, this was like a long time ago. And it's like, I could slow down and try to fix my zipper and close my jacket or I could make this fucking train. And I chose in that moment, like when, when you feel shame, the antidote is to shake it even harder. Like when I'm go-go dancing, if I feel any sort of insecurity about my body, what I do, or my belly, which is the most jiggleable part of my body, it's like rather than like suck it in or trying to make it harder, I just shake it more. And by going, leaning into that fear or, um, uh, like physically allowing my body to experience that celebration of the very thing I'm trying to hide, that is where I find my sexiness. Oh my God, I love that. That actually brings up for me, I'm a runner and you know I'm very interested in kind of sports psychology. I mean, this is the opposite, right? Like the discipline, the pushing yourself, like how do you keep going You know, when it's hard, that type of stuff. And I've heard mm-hmm. not worded the same way or even as articulately as you just said it. And I know we're talking about totally different things, but that that idea of you know when it's you're in the pain cave and you don't think like, okay, well, just try turning it up a little bit. It's almost like proving to yourself because you're in that moment thinking, oh my God, I'm not gonna be able to sustain this. I could never go any faster than this. And then to just kind of prove that wrong or to challenge that assumption that there is a power in leaning into whatever the thing is that you feel afraid of. Totally, completely. Yeah, I like I would have never I mean, if just before we had this conversation, someone would have asked me, you know, the path to sexiness, like I never would have thought that it has to do with going through fear. But it makes sense mm-hmm. hearing you describe yeah. it. Totally. And to to take those very things, like to me, like the act of performing burlesque, like why that's such a home base for me is because for so long, my body was the part of myself I was most at war with. And it was the thing I felt most ashamed of. And in burlesque, you know, your quote unquote flaws become your greatest assets because they are what, you know, they're what makes you you. They're what makes you different. And so it's like that thing that you feel like is the pearl in your mosaic that you would rather keep hidden and in the dark. It's like bringing that thing to the forefront and owning it. Like I, I wrote a blog this week about um, my how at my birthday dinner. This we they were um, my friends were sharing things that they, they were so sweet. They were sharing things they love about me, and one friend said, "You know, Kitty, you are the only person I know who can rock a like bombshell sequin dress at a party and be like so sexy and also like talk about farting." You know, because like I fart all the time and I think it's so funny and my farts are really loud and it's like I couldn't even like I cannot hide it about myself. And to me, like I just think it's so funny and so charming that I have this like quirk. Whereas, you know, there were definitely times in my life where I thought that that was like the most embarrassing thing and I would go to any lengths I could possibly go to in order to hide it. But when I took that one thing that I was like most ashamed about and it was like, fuck it, this is what makes me me and it's funny. Like all of a sudden even farting becomes a source of your sexiness. Yeah, it's it's this idea of like, total inclusion, right? Or like you mentioned the word surrender before or acceptance of, you know, when you're not 
having to waste all of the energy and anxiety on trying to hide parts of yourself or make them smaller or do you know any of those things that I see I do see how that kind of woman who walks into the room and has that magnetism of owning it I mean owning it comes from owning all of the parts of yourself right like exactly yeah yeah so I'm curious, we were emailing before getting on this call, obviously, and, you know, oh, what do you want to talk about, this type of stuff? And you said something that um, really piqued my interest. You said something that you love talking about is the phases of seduction. And do you, I'm, I'm just curious what you meant by that. Is it like a process, like how it actually happens? Like, what do you mean the phases of seduction? Mm, really good question. So to me, one of the things that is a integral concept in sacred seduction is that seduction is always ongoing. Like we are like, we think that seduction is something that we only practice when we're sitting in a hotel bar with an, a romantic interest or something like that. But seduction is something that we are practicing all the time. And in a seduction, whether it's the seduction of a lover or the seduction of a desire or the seduction of a smoothie, it's like there are three phases to each seduction. There is anticipation, which is the first phase. And then there is the event itself, the climax. And then after that is the phase of afterglow. And in our culture, you know, we tend to be a very climax-driven culture. I think we can all relate to the experience of being like, I want to raise so bad. I, I want this extra $5,000 in my bank account or $10,000. And then you get the raise. And then a month later, you're like, I wish I just had $5,000 more. You know, it's like, we're so busy jumping from climax to climax that we don't, it's, it's like jumping from one mountain peak to another as a hiker. It defeats the whole fucking purpose when you don't allow yourself to indulge in and enjoy the valleys that exist in between. And so as that relates to seduction, it's like we can do an exercise in that right now, you and I, and whoever is listening right on to the call right now is like, if you just take your hand and you just like touch your chest, like touch your collarbone, like just give your collarbone a little stroke and then take your hand away. Okay. Okay. Did you do it? Yes. Okay. So it's like, that's one experience, right? And now I want you to do the same exact thing, but rather than placing your hand on your chest immediately, what I want you to do is just become aware of the connection between your hand and your chest and see if you can feel the little buds of tingle of anticipation as your chest starts to think about the touch of your hand and your hand starts to think about the journey of floating over towards your chest. So what do you feel when I say that to you? I mean, the first thing that I would say is that I feel so much more rooted and present in this moment. Beautiful. And do you feel any sort of like tingle on your hand as you think about taking that hand and bringing it to meet your chest? I don't know if I would use the word tingle, but I definitely feel more of an awareness. Okay, great. And so, perfect. And so now what you're going to do is you're going to take your hand and slowly float it towards your chest. And you're going to do the exact same thing, but this time what you're going to do is just do it a little slower. 
so that as you touch your chest, rather than having it just be a casual encounter, you're actually feeling into the sensation of all of the nerve endings of your fingertips meeting with all of the nerve endings of your chest. And then the seduction is still not over. I want you, what I want you to do is very slowly pull your hand away and see if you can feel a tension between those two parts of yourself that have just had an experience. Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, again, it's like we tend to only value the climax of an experience, but knowing seduction as a lifestyle and a spiritual practice is about feeling into and enjoying each of those individual phases for what they are rather than just something that leads to another climax. Like when I, when I asked you about the afterglow phase, that tension, it's like that in itself is a distinct pleasure. And most of us are just very blinded towards getting towards our goal, getting towards our goal, getting towards our goal, that there is no enjoyment left in the journey and indulging the phases of seduction is about understanding that those distinct types of pleasure are available to us in every seduction that we encounter. Like for another example is like, I get a lot of clients who are flirting or online dating and like they're waiting for someone to text, waiting for someone to text. And it's like, what if you heard your phone buzz next to you? And rather than like jumping for it to see if it's the person you thought was texting you, you just laid there. And you just looked at your phone and you just let yourself wonder, who is it that is trying to contact me? Like, as I describe that, can you feel the pleasure of enjoying that distance between you and your desire? Yeah, absolutely. Right? And so it's like the the phases of seduction are about becoming a purveyor of all of these distinct different types of pleasure available in a seduction rather than just the moment where that seduction comes to a head. Well, I mean, and especially because I think what you said with the climax oriented or goal oriented situations, that if it doesn't go, you know, if if the desire is not fulfilled exactly according to like what we wanted or, you know, then it's, it's such a, I don't know, it's such a disappointment, not that it's not okay to be disappointed, of course that it is, but that valuing each of the different phases kind of wholly on their own. I don't know that I I see how there could be a lot more pleasure derived even from an experience that doesn't, for lack of a better phrase, reach climax. Exactly. Exactly. Because when you can take your pleasure from each phase, the climax becomes just another truffle on the tray rather than what you're eating to try to stay alive. Yeah, well, I also, I heard once, I'm actually trying to remember if this was an earlier podcast conversation or if it was a conversation with a friend, I don't know, Um, but talking about around the idea of how to have better sex or how to live a more kind of, and uh, that her thing was that living a more sensual life like inherently leads to that. The idea being, because if we think of sex as just the act, just the climax, just the, okay, turn the light switch on, this thing is happening now, you know, whatever, that that's a hard place for some people, I think, especially women to get into versus like the more 
I don't know, you're living in this state that you just described. It's almost like the more primed your body is for pleasure of all types that I think that that has like a a self-fulfilling positive feedback loop quality. Completely couldn't agree more. Yeah. Because then in it's like not getting what you want becomes a pleasure in itself. Interesting. Okay. What do you mean? Like, for example, like, um, like for, like an example would be like that text, you know, it's like, if I am taking pleasure from just sitting here and letting my hand hover above the phone, but not even checking to see it, like it could be my mom who's texting me. It could be AT&T. I don't know who's on the other end of that phone, but because I have this desire, because I have this uh, seduction going on. It's like, and because I am allowing myself to like literally get off on that anticipation and that, that wanting the actual fulfillment of it becomes almost irrelevant because I've already got what I wanted from the experience, which was pleasure in itself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm obsessed with you. This is great. All these things are fantastic. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Mutual. It's mutual. So one of the things that's really coming up for me as like the, one of the big takeaways for me personally, from everything that you've said is and I don't think that you used this word necessarily, but in everything that you just described, in order to do that, to go through those phases, it's I almost feel like there needs to be an intentional cultivation of space. Because the, you know, even just the difference between, you know, touching your hand to your collarbone versus, you know, the second scenario, the second scenario took longer, required that moment of pause. I mean, and obviously in this specific situation, we're talking about the difference of, right, like maybe 30 seconds or a minute, which would maybe be magnified in other situations, but that it's, I don't know, like almost slowing down more, having the space for these things to even unfold. Because when I'm in my very to-do list, production, masculine, you know, whatever you want to use, energy, space, I don't know that this stuff is never going to come up because it's just a totally different, like, even if it's not actually rushing from one thing to the other, it still has that quality of do the thing, do the next thing, do the next thing, that there isn't any room for this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So cultivation agree. of space. Maybe that's my action step. <laughs> well, you know, and like to give you a question that will assist you in that process what I would what I would love to see for you and for anyone who's listening to this call who wants to create that cultivation of space because the the other side of seduction like there's like the side of the of seduction that's like the stroke you know it's like soft and it's feminine and it's elegant and it's beautiful and then there's the side of seduction that's like the slap you know it's like boundaries and badassery and facing your fears and all those types of things and it's like it, there again there is like seduction by its very nature is alive and it's organic and there is no to to try to put a formula around it would be like try, like would be just an act of chasing your tail and so the question that liberates you to know what is necessary in each moment whether it's the the more stroke side of seduction or the more slap side of seduction is asking yourself what is really seducing me right now? So that it's like, when it comes to like, how do we cultivate that space? How do we create more room in our lives to feel more and to be present for more? To me, that is why seduction is the answer. 
because seduction is the communion of the desires of the body and the mind and the spirit rather than what we're taught, which is that seduction is the collision of the body and the mind. And when you, so like when you are leave, when you are wrapping up this podcast and you're deciding if you're going to format it right now, or if you're going to take a moment to, you know, put on Lady Gaga and go hump the walls, which is what I might do when we get off this call, um, you know, or you decide you're going to like take a walk to the mailbox because you want to get fresh air. It's like, if you try to hold that up to what is the right thing to do right now, their truth is so flexible that truth could like, there are so many different ways to answer that question. Whereas if you ask yourself, what is seducing me most right now, your body and your mind are the only ones who know the, the answer to that question. And so therefore you cannot get it wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that makes me want to ask you the sort of devil's advocate question here and maybe this is my like production mind coming up but I see that an argument in because I mean of course I agree with everything you just said but coming up to that is well if I live that way then I'm never gonna get done any of the things that like I want to do, but I don't want to do in the moment. Like it's, it's a similar argument. You know, I think about our, our friend Isabel Fox and Duke, you know, when she was on the show talking about breaking diet mentality and what diet mentality is. And you know, that this idea that people have, or the question or argument that comes up about intuitive eating. Well, if I just let myself eat whatever I want, then like, obviously I'm just going to eat cake all the time and I'm getting really unhealthy. Right. So And I think Mm -hmm. there's like a similar parallel here that I could see how someone would say, well, uh, yeah, like I'm never going to feel like doing my taxes. So like that's never going to seduce me. I don't know. Like I'm curious if you have Mm -hmm. anything to say in response to that kind of, I don't know, like bullheaded argumentative (laughs) thing. No, totally. I'm so glad that you asked. Um, And yeah, like, like here's the thing is like your taxes will seduce you eventually when the pain of not doing them becomes great enough. Mm. You know, and that is the trend that that is the way in which sacred seduction requires that we transcend this idea that seduction is simply a superficial experience. It's it's almost like this idea of like seduction is just like, who, who am I going to fuck next? You know what I mean? Like, like, <laughs> like this, you know, it's like climax hopping, you know, like true seduction is about tuning into what's true for me in the moment. Because sometimes the answer is what, what's really seducing me right now? Ooh, I want to go to that bar that has all of the Edison light bulbs and that has the really good old fashioned. And I want to wear a vintage slip and I want to go out on a date with that drummer. And then there are nights where it's like, Oh God, you know, that sounds so fun, but shit, I really need to do my taxes. So my taxes are like totally seducing me tonight. And drummer can can wait a couple of nights you know what I mean yes it's like seduction really at its heart all seduction is is what's true for you right now yeah okay so that's it's almost the other level that I needed that it's it's almost this the separation of seduction and pleasure or maybe that seduction is like the umbrella and pleasure is one of the things that lives under it right because it's I think it would be easy to think of okay well yeah like must be nice to be able to live life as like a pleasure chaser or whatever like I that that type of thing but if this if seduction is kind of the overarching thing and the idea is like what's true for me right now or 
you know, even the the thing hanging over, we're using the taxes as the example, if that's like hanging over you and there's a lot of energy there, like there, I guess there's an argument to be made that like that is the kind of seduction because you are, it's it's pulling you and it's attracting you, even if it's not a pleasurable experience, that it's still, yeah, okay, I get it, I get it. Got it, perfect. Yeah, and it's it's, it's funny, it's the same thing, and I, I've talked about this for sure in, in other situations. Going back to the running example, like for me, when I think about running, it's the difference between joy and fun. That like running's not fun. Like most of the time, running's awful, or or not even awful, but it's kind of like meh. Like I have once in a while, maybe once every like twelve or fifteen runs, I have like the magical unicorn run where it feels really good in the moment. But for the most part, I mean, especially you know the weather's getting colder, we're getting into winter. I mean, there's no scenario in which I'm going to want to get up at five a.m. and you know bundle up and go outside in you know twenty five degree weather and go running like no that sounds awful but I'm always glad that I've done it afterwards like it brings joy into my life even if it's not fun in the moment so I I see some parallels between that and what you're saying totally absolutely I love it so tell me a little bit about your book sacred seduction kind of who it's for and why you wrote it so I wrote sacred seduction because one day I was in Barnes and Noble and I was thumbing through the sex and relationship section, which tends to be my favorite section. And I was like, I really want a a book that's going to like inspire me to go home and, you know, take a bubble bath and put out like a cheese board with figs and honey and walnuts and all this stuff. And it was like, there was nothing, you know, like there was just like every book was like 365 sex positions for a different (laughs) book all year long, you know? And I was like, good God, like these books are all missing the point, you know? And so I wrote Sacred Seduction. I made a very conscious choice to make it a full color publication and to include not just the cornerstone principles of seduction as a spiritual practice, but to include things like recipes. And there's over 50 different rituals and exercises and parlor games that you can do in the book to seduce yourself into having a different kind of relationship with seduction uh, in your life. That was that was really why I wrote the book was because I wanted something that in itself, I wanted a book that in itself was going to demonstrate what real seduction feels like. Mm, so I need to have a little book club. I don't even have a book club, but I feel like this would be the perfect book club book for, you know, like girlfriends in person, like to get together and to read this and talk through it. So that's also been added to my to-do list. Um, Okay, so that's an awesome place to start to wrap up. And the way that I like to end these episodes are with what we call community questions. So it's a series of, I guess, rapid fire questions that the Real Talk Radio listeners have asked to hear about from each guest of a given season. And we have nine of these fun little questions for this season if you are game for some random questions. Awesome. I love a good lightning round. Okay. And don't, just because the questions are short doesn't mean, you know, there's no limit on your, your answers do not have to be rapid if you do not want to. So, okay. Okay. Good. So the first question, when was the last time that you tried something new and what was it? The last time I tried something new was on my friend Liz's birthday when um, she is paleo. She has a lot of food, food allergies. And so we had the idea to get her a birthday cake uh, and put a candle in it at this beautiful fancy restaurant. But rather than get her an actual cake, we got her a whole fish. 
So this whole fish comes out, you know, like still eyes, mouth, the whole thing. And we put birthday cake, can birthday candles in it. And that was her birthday cake. So it was my first time eating a whole fish. And that was like a week ago. Okay. Oh, that's, oh, it's funny. These, and we felt like the coolest people ever. Yeah. I mean, de- I mean, definitely. Right. Of course. <laughs> so my favorite thing about these questions, I mean, obviously the, the listeners submit them and then I pick the ones that I think, Ooh, I really want to hear people's answers to that. And this was one that I was really excited when the question was put forward. So yes, your answer did not disappoint. <laughs> okay. So the next question, if you could take a semester long course in any subject, what would it be? Um, it would be I mean, first thing that comes to my mind is I would love it if someone put together a course of seductresses in history so that I could take it and just geek out, nerd out on badass women throughout the ages who were heroines in the game of love. Yeah, well, so if someone if someone does develop that, please let me know because I would like to take it with you. <laughs> um, what's one thing that you're really passionate about that didn't come up at all in this conversation? One thing I'm really passionate about is, um, it, well, it kind of came up in this conversation because it revolves around self-love. But one thing I'm really passionate about is self-love as a physical practice. So what my absolute hands down core seduction practice, self-love practice, pleasure practice is something called naked body worship ritual. And it's where I light candles at, it, it always takes place at night and I have this big antique mirror. It's kind of like the mirror in the first Harry Potter where, you know, you see uh, what you want to see and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But it's like big, beautiful mirror and I light candles and I put down a really furry blanket and I turn on whatever music is turning me on that night. Sometimes it's like Krishna Das. Sometimes it's like, you know, uh, classical music. And I sit in front of the mirror with warm coconut oil in a bowl and I pour it over my skin and I look into my own eyes and I look at my flesh and I physically touch my skin and I squeeze the skin on my belly the way that you would squeeze the brown crispy skin around a Christmas turkey. And I allow my hands to dovetail around my legs the way that chocolate drizzles over a stack of lady fingers and I actually physically it's like the the uh distinguisher of a romantic relationship versus a friendship is the physical act of love and that's something I'm really passionate about being in the self-love self-help teacher education industry is taking it away from being just an intellectual process and turning into a physical, sexy, turned on process. That's, I mean, first of all, it sounds really intense and beautiful, but what you just said about the difference between, you know, friendship versus like the relationship with a lover, that it is, that that's the physical thing that separates it. And, you know, we always hear, you know, be your own best friend and cheerleader and that kind of thing. And obviously that's great and powerful, but to your point, that's very intellectual. And so going Mm -hmm. that one step further. Yeah, I love that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, What would you say has been one of your biggest challenges or obstacles in the past few years and how did you handle it? One of my biggest challenges is comparing myself to others. So even, you know, despite all of this, uh, you know, talk about individuality and all that kind of stuff, you know, I have become really aware lately of just how often when I'm trolling Instagram or Facebook, 
I'm holding my life up to someone else's, you know, what I perceive their life to be like based on their Instagram profile. And um, so my biggest challenge these days is to not do that anymore. And to like, like, I feel like I'm descending into a deeper level of the sanctum of really claiming who I am by not just being who I am and, and, you know, being authentic and being myself out in the world, but actually shutting my blinders to anything that triggers that falsity in my mind, that there's something that there's scarcity around my life in comparison to someone else's life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What's something that you can do today that you weren't capable of a year ago? Um, walking my dog <laughs> less walking my walking my dog at night when I a year ago I was living in Brooklyn and I had a puppy and I felt really bad because I was paper training her and I didn't want to paper train her but I was too afraid to walk her in the middle of the night and now I live in this like suburban neighborhood and I love that I can just leash her up and leave the house anytime I want and she loves it and we walk down the streets and I don't have to worry about Mack trucks or you know her walking right up to a whole raw chicken in the middle of the sidewalk, which happened once when we were in Brooklyn. So I can walk my dog with ease today, which I couldn't do a year ago. I love that. And then, so what's something that you hope to be able to do a year from now that you're not yet capable of today? Something I hope to be able to do a year from now is I, I really would love to be able to go upside down on a pole again. I've got, I used to pole dance and I've gotten away from it in the last five years and I have a shoulder injury from it. And I would love to be able to just climb and flip on that thing and slide down like Lady Godiva. <laughs> I love that. Um, so this <laughs> next one, you, you might've answered in talking about, um, thinking you were going to be a nun, but the question is when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a veterinarian or a school teacher or a nun. Okay. Actually, <laughs> actually I wanted to be a priest. But in the Catholic faith, we all know how that goes. So I, I thought I had to settle for becoming a nun. Interesting. Okay. So other than um, the book that we talked about, Betsy's book, Seductress, what was it? Do you tell me the title one more time? Seductresses? Seductress, Women Who Ravish the World and Their Lost Art of Love. Okay. I'll put that in the show notes. But uh, so what are a couple other, maybe two or three books of any genre that you would say have had a big impact on you? I would say uh, the book In the Time of the Butterflies by Julia Alvarez. Um, when I was 17, I always, I, I grew up with a learning disability, an undiagnosed learning disability. And so I always kind of felt like I was stupid and I scraped my way through school. And then when I graduated high school, a friend gave me this book and I hadn't read for pleasure since I was in probably third grade. And this book, which is about um, the, what's called the Four Butterflies in the Dominican Republic, these badass women um, who were part of the resistance um, in the Dominican Republic in the 50s, it was their story. It's a, it's a fictional story. It's like historical fiction, but um, it changed everything for me. And so that and, and that was what really opened me up to, oh, maybe I'm not stupid. Maybe I just learn in a different way. Maybe I just need to actually what I really need in order to learn is seduction. Like I need it to seduce me. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that was a game changer and, um, definitely seductress. And then another book that was a real game changer for me was lost seduction, how the French play the game of life. 
And it's all about how in French culture, seduction is not thought of as this, you know, shady, you know, thing that it's actually an insult if someone, if someone tries to pursue you without a seduction game changer. Okay. Oh, see, my reading list is, is getting gloriously long. I love it. The last question, when you look ahead at the next few months, what do you feel most excited about? I feel most excited about taking my business in a completely new direction. And I don't know what that is yet. So right now I'm closing out a, a certain program and I've had a lot of change in my life in the last two years. Um, my father died and a couple of other just kind of really uh, sad losses happened in my life. And I feel like I, I like, I feel like I am moving towards something totally different and totally new that is just going to bring together and gel together everything that I have been just kind of pursuing on blind passion over the last six years. And now I feel my roots growing down into the earth more deeply. And so I know that's kind of a vague answer that I don't know what it is yet, but stay tuned. And I say that to myself also, stay tuned, Kitty Cavalier, because you're in for a show. Well, I mean, I, I totally can relate to that energy of like, you know, that something new is coming, like you feel that like power, but you don't know exactly what it is yet. And again, the anticipation, like what if you can get pleasure from just that point? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh my God. Thank you. Yeah. So for everyone who is listening, what's the best place for them to find out more about your work? And then as far as social media goes, do you have a favorite place to connect with people? I do. So um, kittycavalier.com is the best place to go and learn about my work because that is where my the crown jewel in my work, which is my blog. I've been keeping a blog for the last five years and that's where I spill my guts and my blood and my tears and my happiness and every like everything goes on my blog. I tell really intimate personal examples and stories on my blog. Um, so I really would love to have you a member of my community and share that with you. And you can find that on kittycavalier.com. And then my favorite social media place to connect is Instagram. So um, my handle on Instagram is kittycavalier. Easy, easy. That's my, Instagram's my favorite too. Okay, so I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much. This was such a delightful and eye-opening conversation for me. My pleasure. Thank you for all the amazing, freeing, beautiful work you do in the world. And I'm honored to be here talking with you. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I absolutely couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. And the show is made possible by awesome people like Tara. Hi, Tara. Hi, Nicole. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks. Me too. This is super fun. So we are going to play a quick three question round of my favorite game, and that is Would You Rather? So I have three Would You Rather questions that um, the internet has has given me, <laughs> and um, <laughs> I'm going to ask okay. them to you. That's what's going to happen. All right. All right. So, All right. so here goes. Would you rather never be able to speak again or always have to say every single thing that crosses your mind the very moment that you think it? Oh, gosh, that's a good one. Um, 
I'm going to have to go with, I would say, everything that comes to my mind as soon as it comes across. Um, I feel like that the older I get, the the easier a, a concept that is for me to grasp or to kind of embrace. Um, certainly, I still am kind of a people pleaser, but I think that, so I, I, I wouldn't want to, it would be hard for me to hurt someone's feelings, um, but I can't imagine not ever speaking. So, yeah. And neither can my husband. I'm sure he would vouch for that. <laughs> I would probably pick the same one. Okay. <laughs> so this one. So basically, when I was looking up would you rather questions, there's like the clean ones, the dirty ones, the disgusting ones. Like, of course, I had to pick one from every category. So <laughs> would you rather have sex with your cousin in secret or not have sex with your cousin, but have everyone think that you did? Oh, I think I think probably I would just let everybody think that I did. Yeah, I think so too. That would be um, because mine too. I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I would just have that. Would I would have to live with that? Yeah, but yeah. it's easier. It would be easier to live with yourself, right? Like that's. I saw a couple. <laughs> right. I yeah, saw some variations. Done it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I saw some variations of this question, which were like either your cousin or a goat or like, and I'm like, you know what? People can just think what they want to think. That's fine. I don't want to actually do that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good one. So the last one, would you rather have to swim the length of a pool that's filled with human poop once per week or have a green cloud that everyone can see form around you every time you fart? Wow. It's awful. Um, it's so awful. I'm going to go I'm going to go with the green cloud because at least maybe I would have a little control over that. Um whereas the poop swimming like obviously that's you know there's a set like I would have to do it every week. So I'm just going to go with the green cloud. Oh my god, you and I have picked all the same answers. I love it. Okay, so why don't you <laughs> after that, now that everyone knows all of that, um introduce yourself to the rest of the listeners real quick. Maybe tell everyone where you live and one thing that you're totally obsessed with lately. Okay, so as as you've already said, my name is Tara. I live in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, I am totally obsessed right now. Actually, I think probably because I just finished it last night with this Netflix series called Stranger Things. Have you heard of this? Um, I have heard of um, it. My husband's super into it. Yeah, so it's... Um, I, my mind was blown at the end of the last episode, and I had to immediately, of course, Google and see if there's going to be another season, which there is. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely obsessed with that show. I've been telling everyone about it. What's it about? Um, okay, so the thing that I love most about it is that it's set back in the 80s. So it's kind of like a... Um, it, it reminds me a lot of like E.T. and movies that came out like around that time, like the early to mid 80s, even the graphics like for the the all of the um, intro to the show. Everything is very 80s looking and the, the houses, the kids, the, the parents, everything is like they have these old Tupperware pitchers like for their iced tea. At that, I mean, I don't know where they even found some of this stuff. But it's so great. And so it's kind of nostalgic. But at the same time, there's this suspense and this um, these, this group of kids kind of stumble upon. Um, I don't want to give it away. But there's um, kind of a supernatural element to it, um, which is kind of where the E.T. part comes in. Um, but 
not nice, not like ET nice. It's kind of scary. Okay. Yeah. So, that's someone. It's, it's funny. I think this has come up on the podcast before that I don't watch or read or listen to anything that's scary or at all like haunting <laughs> or emotionally disturbing or like anything that's like a horror movie or Law and Order SVU. Like anything that's going to make me home alone is like a bit like afraid to be home alone is not Nicole approved. So <laughs> both my husband and someone else were saying how good this show was. And they were like, but it's not Nicole approved. Yeah. You can't, like, you can't watch it. So. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Okay, yeah. so you, I am very grateful to say, are a member of our Patreon support squad, meaning that you are one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible, since you have made a small but powerful pledge that helps fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show and what you are enjoying about being in the Patreon community. Well, I number one, I, I love the show. I don't want it to um, to go anywhere. And since it's community supported now, I want to make sure that I'm supporting um, the show because I want for it to continue. And I enjoy the episodes a lot because, um, you know, as the name suggests, it's a real talk. People are talking about their own lives, their own issues, um, things that maybe they they don't talk about, you know, all the time. And it's things that a lot of people can relate to. Um, I listen to people's stories um, for a living, essentially, um, because I'm a hospital chaplain, and I get a lot out of hearing these conversations from other people listening to what it is that's on their mind and kind of the struggles that they deal with and how they get through them. Um, And then in terms of the community, it's just being able to connect with other like-minded individuals, other people who are listening to these conversations, who are participating um, in them and asking the questions. And so it's just really kind of this cool group of folks who are all sharing their stories. And um, it's just, I mean, it's, I really, really enjoy it. I hope that more people will get involved and, and want to share some of themselves as well. Oh, well, I hope so too. And thank you. All of, oh, that makes my heart feel so good. I love that. You're the best. Um, thank you for being brave and for joining me for this little, whatever this is that, we, that we're doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is fun. Okay, I'm excited to hear all the other ones. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, want 20 plus hours of bonus content and want to help us reach the funding goal that we need to hit in order to keep the show going beyond the end of 2016, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and I can't wait to get to know you better behind the scenes in our fun little community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together. 